Hello everyone, hello and um, warm welcome. Thanks for joining us for another Motorsport Magazine podcast. The biggest and the best podcast in the world, by the way. And you have made it so, thank you. Um, Before we get underway with uh, Andy Wallace and James Weaver, Weaver and Wallace for one hour today, it's going to be good fun. Let me tell you about uh, our subscription, our latest offer. You can save up to 50% when you subscribe at the moment. So if you subscribe now, you get it half price. It's good. And you also get Grand Prix Driver by Driver DVD and book. Grand Prix Driver by Driver, the DVD and the book, absolutely free of charge. Um, and if you don't already know, that's a comprehensive collection of profiles of the best drivers to have raced in Grand Prix, from Nuvolari to Moss, Fangio, Clark, Senna, Schumacher and Hamilton, to name a few. And let me also tell you that the Motorsport Magazine archive is live. We are live on the archive. All right. That's, uh, that's every word that's ever been written in Motorsport Magazine since 1924. Bedtime reading for somebody else. I recommend it, actually. Yeah, it's amazing. Look back to the 30s and 20s and 30s. Fascinating. Okay. Welcome, James Weaver. Welcome, Andy Wallace. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, let me get the ball rolling because uh, Lamar looks like being very exciting this year. Um, seems to there's a real sort of buzz about sports car racing, isn't there? World Endurance Championship. Um, what are your thoughts, James, on on the new technology, the hybrid technology, all these whispering motors and everything? Well, to me, it's a bit like wandering around with a sack of potatoes on the off chance you fancy some chips. It doesn't seem a very efficient way of doing it, but um, I, I think the Audi people are working on turning water into fuel, aren't they? And the American Navy's come up with something. So I suspect everything we're seeing now will probably have a very short um, uh, lifespan, and then they'll move on to some serious technology. Do you, what about you, Andy? Do you, do you like this new, the new era? Well, I would agree with James if these uh, devices that are bolted onto the cars weighed as much as a sack of potatoes or this table or even your good self, James. But in (laughs) fact, they're very light, very compact. And even when we do turn water into fuel in a couple of months' time, we may well still have some of these systems because they're they're still collecting waste energy. So I think there's a, there's a space for it. I know what you're thinking, James. You're thinking, you're thinking all sorts of things. If you see these things, they're really small and they're actually, you know, very light. Uh, no, the only reason I said that was so we got a sensible answer out of you. Uh, okay. <laughs> right, well, uh, job done then. <laughs> I did tell you, Weaver and Wallace. <laughs> I'm on my best behaviour today, I tell you. Um, no, but what, the thing about it is there's also that, for me, motor racing, and I'm sure for all you guys, has to have a bit of shock and awe about it, doesn't it? And I'm not sure these cars do, do they? Do they? Well, that's a very good point, Rob, because um, I can actually go into probably... I could probably buy my wife any one of 30 cars that has more horsepower than a Le Mans car, which is not a good thing for the sport. And certainly when Andy and I were first in America in the late 80s, when it came to qualifying, we didn't sit in the pits and look at the monitor. We all went out to watch because they crank yes. these yes. babies up to over a thousand horsepower yeah. and send it. And the visceral excitement was quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And I think they've lost the plot because when the cars started taking off, they said, I don't know, I've got a great idea, let's make the wings smaller. And we're all thinking, hang on a minute, I thought we were putting them on to keep the car on the ground. And then, of course, the cars go faster and say, oh, we've got another fantastic idea, let's make the engines less powerful. And now they've got slow, ugly cars, mm. which is not a great marketing ploy. Mm. Okay, okay. Well, um, actually, and just to add to that, for me, I think this is completely the wrong way. If you want to make the car safer, you have to increase the horsepower, not decrease the horsepower, if you're talking about Le Mans, because you've got a speed at which you'd like to achieve on the straight. So if you've got less horsepower, you run less downforce, which means the car takes off. So more, more power means more downforce means safer. Now, the three minutes 30, I think you just have to forget that. The cars will go around in under three minutes, perhaps. But, but who cares if they're bolted to the ground? They're a real fantastic spectacle, I think. I, w- I always find it interesting watching uh, Le Mans, because even down the Mulsanne Strait, the, the LMP cars, certainly the LMP2 cars, don't scream past the GT cars as fast as you think they would. There's, you know, they, they do get past, obviously, but you think, oh, that's, that's not right, that's supposed to be an LMP car. Mm. 
Mm. Well, that's right. And in fact, the, the pass is not done on the straight. The pass is done because the car, the LMP2 car is lighter coming out of the corner than the GT car. You might get up alongside it and follow it all the way down the straight or alongside it all the way down the straight. And then at the braking area, you might pull another couple of metres. It's really a struggle. So what it does actually is it means that everybody trips over everybody else. And that was the same at Daytona in January. The, the LMP2s and the GTs, when they were going flat out around the banking together, they were, they were just glued together. I mean, the, the LMP2s lighting better on the brakes, etc. But top speed, it was, it was nout in it. That, that's right, yeah. And so everybody arrives at the corner together and, and trips over each other. Whereas in the days before, I mean, our good teammate, James and I's uh, teammate for many years, Butch Lightsinger, when we started uh, doing the Daytona 24 hours, he was in a, a GTU car, which would be probably equivalent of GT2 now. But he knew he was a second-class citizen when he was driving that car. And every time my Jaguar came up to lap him, <laughs> he cowered and moved out of the way. But you see... Because the cars were a lot faster on the straight and, and you never tripped over each other in the corners and I never ever bumped into to Butcher or any of his, uh, his class. But now the GT drivers are empowered to um, A, not be second class citizens and B, actually be in the way. You know, they're told don't move out of the way, don't do anything, just mm. keep on driving. So then if the cars are the same speed on the straight and nobody's giving way to the, another driver, you end up with a big mess. You've got so a traffic jam, in fact, haven't you? Yeah. You've got a traffic jam. I mean, you've got more danger, I think. Whereas yeah. if the, if the uh, closing speed on the straight was, was large, the overtaking is mm. over and done with before the corner. Let's, um, let's reel back the years um, because there's a lot of years around this table with Weaver and Wallace, a lot of years. And, and me. And, uh, well, <coughs> and Simon Aaron, our, our, our uh, motorsport magazine encyclopedia, who's also, who's also with us here today. And Ed Foster, our producer, is here too. I should have mentioned this already. Um, you both struggled quite a lot to get into motor racing. I mean, a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of setbacks. Um, would you do it again? I don't think you could do it again today. It'd just be too difficult. But um, you know, looking back on it, the thing about motor racing, it is a meritocracy, and you only ever um, get to the top if if you're good enough. Mm. And so, you know, I, I think whether you struggled or not, or all the breaks you had, or whatever, I think um, y you rise to the level at which you, you know, of your ability. Sure. And I think certainly for Andy and I, the struggling to start with made us sort of pretty tough, resilient competitors. But I don't know if I'd come from a privileged background or had more chances. I don't think I'd have ultimately done any better than I did. But all those all those scary wet afternoons in Formula Ford, I mean <laughs> was there ever was there ever a point where you thought mm. They were the best days, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, but I think uh, where where it did perhaps benefit was because actually we didn't really have anything to lose did we if if we didn't succeed in this we were on the scrap heap so you know you desperately desperately wanted to succeed because you know the alternative was awful weren't you doubling up as a gas fitter when you were racing pre-74 formula ford uh, you're absolutely right. failing me yeah when i left school that's what i, I did do for a, for a little while um Tilly called the neighbours a budgie. It, well, <laughs> well, to be fair, it was on its last legs anyway, um, and that little you bit just of, helped it along. Well, that last little bit of carbon monoxide just finished it off, but it was going to die anyway. In fact, it was nailed to that perch. I noticed. <laughs> I know, but uh, I remember the commentators always used to go on about how you worked for the gas board. I don't know why that stayed with me actually. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about the early days. Give us a couple of good, good stories. Because, I mean, I know um, when James and I were talking about Mike Thackwell, he came up with a couple of... It was pretty much hand-to-mouth, wasn't it? I mean, you know, it was like... I guess it was sort of do or die almost, wasn't it? I, well, looking back on it now, it, it was almost pathetic how disorganised we were. But, I mean, talking about Mike Thackwell, he worked for Mike Easting down at Scorpion Racing at Thruxton. And I shared a, a house with uh, Mike Thackwell, Mark Douay... Didier Tays, there were a whole gang of us. And I remember, um, you know, one weekend going to race at Brands Hatch. Mike Easley kind of limped one of the school cars and put my car in the trailer. And I didn't have any, I put as much petrol in the racing cars I needed for the weekend. And then I set off to Brands Hatch. I didn't have enough money to get there. And I just think, well, I'll wait till I break down. Somebody will come past and turn me to the circuit, which is exactly what happened. <laughs> it's, it's dreadful, isn't it? Well, no, I think I think it shows tremendous fighting spirit. Actually, I must say, <laughs> but this was what it was like, Andy, wasn't it? Well, well, it wasn't actually. I don't know what it is about being towed to the circuit. I had a very similar experience. I I, um, I had a transit van, which is well, we all had vans, didn't we? And we slept either in them. Or actually, James used to point out that we didn't sleep in them because the le the roofs leaked. You would sleep under them, and it was drier. 
But I was going to Snetterson on, uh, with the trailer on the back with my Formula Ford car in and driving along in the transit and the crankshaft snapped on the way up the A11, in fact. And so pull over to one side and I knew that my, um, well, one of my sponsors actually was a, a very good friend of mine who was helping me to try and find little bits of money to carry on racing. I knew he was coming past in an hour or so. So I just waited on the side of the road till he did. Um, but he was in a very inappropriate inappropriate car to tow me with so he went all the way to the track borrowed from andrew gilbert's got um a land rover came back the only piece of rope we had was really really short so we've got the land rover from andrew gilbert's got um being towed on this tiny piece of rope i'm i'm in the transit which is a luton transit of course i had no brakes because after two pumps the servo's not working and then on the back of that is the the trailer with the racing car in and I was petrified. I was absolutely destroyed by the time we got to the circuit. But we made it. But actually, it has a, this, this um, story has another side to it. I was supposed to be there to test the Pacer Formula Ford car. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to test it in the morning. And in the afternoon, Jim Walsh was going to test it. And because I didn't make it to the track, he was already there. He ended up driving it in the morning. And in, going into the richest corner, first corner at Stetterton, he had a steering arm failure. And so one wheel turned left, the other t wheel turned right, and he had his massive accident um, up against the bank there and broke his ankles, legs, elbows. It's your lucky lungs. day, wasn't it? It's just so strange how these things, how these things happen. But yeah, but it got it got all that was kind of worth it, wasn't it? Because um, it got a bit bigger and smarter after that, didn't it? I mean, I. Uh, because the thing about Formula Ford, I'm sure Simon will remember all this, is there were a hell of a lot of people in it for one thing, weren't there? You know, so you had to be to shine at all. You had to be pretty damn good. Um, but but Andy, I remember when you you made it into Formula Three. This was a big big break. I mean, people may not understand it now because so many guys go from karting, and you know, if they're good, they go they go up very fast. But that was a in those days that was a huge thing, wasn't it, to get into a it, it was. It was a huge. It was a huge step to get into Formula Three. It was a, a large budget was required, and then from there, most people did that use that as a springboard straight into Formula One. So yeah. it was very, very important and extremely difficult to get there. But it wasn't cheap. No. Did Andy, you, you the, I think you're about one of the few people to win the British Formula Three Championship who didn't go into Formula One. Uh, yes. What's your excuse? But, well, thanks for <laughs> thanks for pointing that out, James. In fact, everybody, if you if you look at the list of uh, Formula Three champions up until '86 when I was, every single driver yeah. got to Formula One, and I I did the tour of the Formula One teams and came away with two very good offers, but of course they both required yeah. the money, and there was absolutely no chance to, to find that money. You and, hadn't and fitted enough radiators, had you? <laughs> or gassed enough Actually, the radiators were long gone by then, yeah, um, yeah, after yeah, that yeah. budgery thing, um, <laughs> budgy thing, but uh, no, but um, no, and it, it was absolutely impossible to find the money, and, and ironically, the, the sums of money involved then were, were yeah. minuscule compared to what they are yeah, now, sure. but you still couldn't, couldn't sure. do it, so. But I mean, it's, it's changed a lot since then, I mean, you're right, up until the 80s, Pretty much, you know, a victory in the British Formula Three Championship was as it was a pretty good, mm. you know, lever to get into Formula One. But I mean, the last Grand Prix winning driver who won the British F Three Champion rather to win the win a Grand Prix of any kind was Rubens Barrichello, which is more than twenty years ago. Yeah. All right, what I mean, I mean, did he win? Yeah. I mean, the, the people, it just hasn't been the same trampoline that well, he used to lost be. Its Stature. I'm not talking about the last couple of years when it, when no. they've been thin fields on, but I'm talking generally from the nineties onwards. I mean, yeah, one or two have made it through to F One, but none have really had much of it from the late 90s onwards none have really had much of an impact things have changed yeah. well, james what was your excuse for not making it into formula one well i think a catalogue of catastrophic errors um followed by screwing up some really good chances and and sadly not not quite being good enough was it but was it the big ambition is it every but is it every racing driver's big you know is that what everyone I think you wanted to do it just because you wanted to drive the fastest cars, yeah, yeah. whereas now people say, oh, I want to win. Whereas I think in our day, winning was a natural result yeah. of, of what <laughs> you did. It wasn't, you didn't think, well, I'm going to go and win today. Yeah. You just wanted to drive as fast, fast as you, sure. you could. Sure. But um, I think I was having this conversation with Andy a little while ago, and I think we were incredibly lucky to, to be able to do it when we did it, mm. because now the job of a sort of journeyman racing driver doesn't exist it sort of disappeared and except to the back of the formula one grid sorry yeah, well, except yeah. to the back of the formula one grid <laughs> but but you know it, it's you, we were just we were just so lucky to, to have the have you the opportunity to have made a living out of it for the, the whole career sometimes. yeah and yeah. yeah to be able to do it never mind earned a living yeah. at it yeah. but then now when you look at the top of formula one the standard is so unbelievably high 
I think it's never the quality there's um, quite yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, it is, especially right now. You're right. Yeah. Um, what, what, at what point was it? I mean, the famous, the, uh, you know, the championship, Magic Motorsport, and Robert Singh and his Merry Men. You know, it was a. <laughs> it's kind of looking back. It all seems incredibly sort of. Uh, what's the word? Um, bohemian. Uh, yes, almost. It was sort of bohemian, but 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 quite quite smart for its time, wasn't it? And and you must have thought, wow, you know, this is it. I'm I, I've made it. I'm. Well, I think each time you take a step up, you, you think it's fantastic, it's wonderful. But in fact, you open a massive tin of worms because if you're actually um, successful at that level, now you've got to find even more resources yeah. to, to move up to the next level. So, But you don't worry about things like that, do you? You just take it as it goes. Um, I had a very, very good uh, race engineer in, in Mick Cook working for Matrick. Yes, um, I remember he did well. a, Yeah, did a fantastic job on the car. In fact, Matrick did a fantastic job preparing the car, um, yep. period. We had less than half of a, a real budget to go yeah. racing yeah. Um, and, and we were we were successful but um, one of the things we did was in those days we were on cross-ply tyres and most teams were just throwing new tyres at the, at the car every weekend well we didn't have the money to do that so we bought some tyres at the beginning of the year put them into sets and we just used them all year and actually I don't think that was a disadvantage to be fair because because cross-plies actually after you've run them they grow a little bit and so they're not necessarily the same circumference. So in, in it's very important to have them the same circumference for the for the cornerways. Sure. So I think the people that were chucking new tyres on, sometimes they'd get it lucky and the, they were exactly the right size and sometimes they weren't and it wasn't an advantage. So anyway, that was that. And then of course, uh, end of the year, Macau Grand Prix had a fantastic uh, time mm. down there and ended up winning both heats of that. Mm. And from that came a test in the Benetton BMW at Donington yes. Park, which we were talking about before we, we went were, on there with Manueli Pirro. <laughs> we, um, well, we were actually. But and the reason we were is because um, uh, Manueli Piro has sent in a question to the Motorsport Magazine podcast, which I, I, I'm very chuffed about this. Well, we all are actually, because um, Manueli's just done a podcast with us. Anyway, he has written in to say, first of all, that he has great respect for both of you and admiration for your long and versatile careers. It was nice to hear. Thank you. And I'm shame he's not on a video link actually. Um, and, and of course, you all started pretty close together and, and uh, came across each other several times during the course of your racing life. And he finishes off by saying, "Hats off to both of you. Okay, <laughs> okay forgive me, man. Really. Um, anyway, he goes, sorry, he goes on to say, uh, we, that's Andy and Manueli, had a, had a test with the Benetton BMW at Donington in 86. And Manueli wants to hear a bit about it, Andy, because um, he says it was a pretty brutal racing car and he had to drive it with his eyes shut <laughs> in order to keep his foot down. <laughs> well, first of all, before answering that, that question, I have to say that that's the feelings mutual with Manueli. He was always a fantastic guy to race against. Wonderful character. Um, very, very nice guy, and I hope he's listening now, and if he's not, he better have a good excuse. <laughs> Other um, than the time Perry wanted to kill him at Hockenheim. Well, yes. In, in the restaurant. <laughs> well, you better tell yeah. us about this. <laughs> Actually, the thought of Perry and Perry, this is, by the way, for those of you who are li um, not listening in uh, with a lot of experience of British motor racing, Perry is Perry McCarthy, one of the great characters of British racing, who eventually did make it to Formula One, but in an absolutely dreadful car. Anyway, carry on. Oh, I'm not going to tell, tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll set, I'll set the scene then for the for the Donington Park. Um, I hadn't driven anything other than a Formula Three car, and then I was uh, I was invited to go to Donington Park with with several other drivers. Manuel, of course, was one of them. And at our disposal was the Benetton BMW, and this was, of course, the four cylinder, one and a half litre, very very powerful um, Benetton, and. So it was in December, and it, the ambient temperature was two degrees. And if you remember, the last race of 86 was won by Gerhard Berger yeah. in that Benetton using Pirelli tyres. And one of the reasons he won, apart from the fact that he was really fast and the car was good and he won, but he used the same set of tyres for the entire race. Pirelli, the same set of tyres for the entire race. Interesting. Different days. Um, yes. So, uh, so they turned up to Donington Park, and, and of course Mexico City would have been quite warm. They turned up to Donington Park with these same tyres, not the exact ones he used, but the same compound. So we put the tyres in the oven in the what was the old collecting area at Donington, and we had space eaters in there, all freezing to death. They took them out of the oven, bolted them on the car, and after about four laps, they'd cooled down enough that we had to stop and put them back in the oven. That's the situation we had. So on top of that, 
Formula 3 car had 165 horsepower. So now you're jumping into, I suppose they had about 900 horsepower that we, we drove. It wasn't in qualifying trim. But they on the um, BMW engine, you had a butterfly for each of the four cylinders and another fifth butterfly in the intake. So when you press the throttle down, the first bit went, I don't know, maybe 15 millimetres, and then there was a resistance, and then there was a, a further bit. Well, I didn't know that. Nobody actually explained that to me. So I was driving the car on the first bit, thinking, cool, this is really powerful. It's about 400 horsepower, apparently. So you blimey, these, these are really powerful cars. I, then, I was coming out of um, coppice onto the straight, and I went over a bump and accidentally pressed it all the way to the floor. I couldn't believe it. The, the violence. That the, I mean, it's just absolutely astounding how much power from 165 to 900 there was. And the other thing you, you had, the, the power band was, was absolutely wicked. And electronics were in their early stage of development at that point. So, so the throttle wasn't really mapped at many sites. So you had off, you had probably half, and you had full, and that was it. So as you're driving the car, once you hit 8,000, you hit, really hit the power on the torque spike and you had to shift at 11 and a half but as soon as the needle got to a, a eight it was on 11 and a half and therefore on the limiter so it would be under eight under eight under eight so eight and then limiter and i couldn't get to the gear lever quick enough to change gear and when i stopped they said look you've got to you've got to shift before 11 five i'm going well it's only just past eight and it's on 11 five so and it takes a lot to get your head around that so couple that with the fact that it's freezing cold and therefore the tyres are not uh, not doing their best job, then it was starting to get quite dark and overcast. So the titanium uh, skid plates underneath were showering sparks. We were doing, I think, 175 miles an hour down the straight into the chicane. Um, this is on the short circuit. With all these sparks showering Fantastic. off. It was unbelievable, but, but what a jump. And so yeah. therefore... To try and do a fantastic job in front of a Formula One team, you didn't want to crash, of course, no, of course. Um, but you also wanted to drive fast. Now, I have to say, on that uh, day, Manueli was the fastest, and I ended up being the second fastest. And then when they needed a driver, who did they call? Manueli. And he did a good job, too, so good luck to him. But he had, in my defence, he had driven more powerful cars than me in between, but he did a brilliant job. Well, hats off to both of you, I say. It sounds, it sounds thoroughly frightening to me. <laughs> um, James, Manueli would like uh, uh, to hear from you as well, actually, because uh, and, uh, this is quite a long story, but I'll be as brief as I can. In 1982 at Silverstone, it's a, a British ch championship race, and um, with different tyre specs for European and British series. Important to mention that because very different rubber. And on the first lap at Woodcote, uh, Manueli lost his way because he says he wasn't familiar with the circuit and he went straight on. The race director had been very clear, he says, during the driver's briefing, there would be a 10-second penalty added to the race time for those who cut the chicane. Oh, my God, I told myself. The other one say, I pushed like hell for the whole race and won by 10.3 seconds, which was, in fact, obviously only 0.3 because of the penalty. And uh, you, James, finished, <laughs> finished second in that race and won the British section of it. Are you remembering this? Oh, good, good. <laughs> I'm good. Um, <laughs> Manuel, he says this was, was quite an intense experience for him in difficult, prestigious British motorsport land. So take us back to that, uh, that day. Cause yeah, we were running Yokohama tyres, which were so much better than anything else. And I qualified on pole, and you could go through Stowe and Club flat in fifth gear. The tyres were that good. Wow. But as you were doing it, bits of rubber were flying off the tyres and coming whistling past your ears. So even to me, it was obvious they weren't going to last. So we had to put some harder tyres on for the race, which were about, I think, two seconds a lap slower. So in the morning warm-up, I fell off at Cops and destroyed the left-hand side of the car and knocked myself out. Um, so I went and had to lie down you know, <coughs> a few sweeties, and Eddie Jordan's boys nailed the car back together again. And, and the race started. But I was, um, I just couldn't get myself organised because, you know, because I basically had concussion. But anyway, after a few laps, I sort of more or less got the hang of it and it, it, and it wasn't too bad. But if only he, Emmanuel, had driven that fraction slower, yeah. I'd have been fine. Point, point 0.3 of a second. Yeah. It was, it was a, it, on the European rubber, the Formula 3 cars were unbelievable. Because literally, you just had to, you just sort of inched your way around, the, just turn the steering wheel really slowly because they had so much grip. If you turned quickly, you, it was like putting your foot on the brake. Interesting. So you just used to turn into the corners a little bit early and just let it scrub a bit. 
and then do the last part at the corner. They were actually radials, weren't they, James? The Yokohamas? Because we were always running on cross plies, weren't no, we? No, they were still cross plies. Oh, they were. But the front tyre had a huge dip in the profile, so it sort of ran on the inside and the outside shoulder. And the rear tyres, um, we, we used to have to get the old electric um, carving knife out yes, yes, and cut all the inner shoulders off to get the heat yes. out, of the, out of the rubber. It was, it, was, it was interesting stuff. And our tyre engineer was a guy called Bert Baldwin, who was oh. ex-Goodyear. And Bert was massively clever with the tyres. He was very Fab good with slicks, wasn't he? Sorry? He was very good with slicks. His name was Bert Baldwin. Ah, Thank you, Andy. Sorry, I completely <laughs> missed that. Right, one. Uh, that, that that's that's, that's the, the joke of the first half of the programme, isn't it? Any more like that, Andy? Well, or are you well I'll, I'll let you know. I'll put my hand up if I have another one. <laughs> Go on, then. Sorry, it's, James, I was actually sat down to read the lunch with um, that you both did uh, with Simon Taylor, I think three years ago now. Um, and you were talking about sort of racing, racing there, having been unconscious and everything like that. Didn't, was it 86 at Le Mans where you had had a couple of glasses of wine and then then you were, so there was sudden news you had to get back in the car? Yeah. Um, yeah that was actually <laughs> that very, was very, very embarrassing. It was, um, it was, I was driving for Richard Lloyd and Richard was running the Porsche 962 for um, Marabaldi, uh, Price Cobb and Rob Dyson. But Richard was also running the factory Nissan team and they had two cars. And um, we had the new car um, which was designed by Gordon Coppock and was absolutely stunning. It was a fabulous thing. And they had the old bucket, um, which was the 85G March or something. Anyway, I was meant to be in the new car, but then they decided it would be a good idea to run one old car and one new car. So I got levered out of the new car into the old one. Anyway, the whole of practice was a complete bum fight. And um, we, I said that the Porsche curves were fourth gear and um, the Japanese driver said no, fourth gear was too tall. So they got the engineers to put a really short fourth gear in. Um, so then when you change from fourth to fifth, of course, there was such a huge rev drop, the, the thing wouldn't go. And anyway, they wanted to leave it and we were told not to run the engine at 7,000 revs um, because that's, it had a horrible vibration, it would break the crank. So they set off down the Mulsanne at 7,000 revs and uh, strangely, the crank broke. <laughs> <laughs> So they were now down to one 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 car, and um, so Keith Keith was pretty cheesed off with the way things were going. He said, "I tell you what, why don't we get the Japanese driver out in the broken down car and stick him in your car, and you can have the rest of the weekend off?" And I said, well, "Good idea, Keith." So anyway, they did that, and so I sat down in the motorhome, had a few glasses of wine, was chatting, and um, the organisers came up. And we had four people in the car, which they were going to exclude us, so we had to. Keith did some fast talking and the ACO wanted to get Nissan back and what have you, so they said they'd turn a, a blind eye really? if I got back in the car. And um, anyway, I said, well, what should I do, Keith? And he goes, well, run around the motorhome twice. If you can make it, I'll see you in the pits. <laughs> so, okay, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> so I ran around the motorhome twice, went back to the pits, jumped in the car, and I was sort of looking at it while they were dicking about with it. And um, I thought, well, that's a bit odd. And I said, so I said to Keith, look, the water temperature is 40 degrees. You need to take the radiators up. It wouldn't start. It wouldn't run because it was so cold. So eventually he said, well, look, drive up to the end of the pit lane. Just sit with it on the rev limiter for five minutes and see if you can get it hot enough to get enough power to get out of the pit lane. So that's what I did. Just sat up the end of the pit lane, <laughs> literally for five minutes. And then, of course, as soon as he got going on the Mulsanne, the water temperature dropped. And then we had... Um, Anyway, I'm, going to I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to tell you this. Things got steadily worse, and up to the point, um, I was then back in the motorhome, and uh, they, the guy, the Japanese team manager comes up and says, can we speak to Weaver-san? And Keith goes, yeah, and he goes, well, we'd like you to drive again. I said, well, it's not my turn. And he goes, oh, well, it is, because Wada-san, um, who actually was a very good driver, had mentioned he couldn't see at night. <laughs> <laughs> we waited till halfway through the race. So he said, look, you know, he, he literally cannot see. So anyway, I got back. Um, so a half-cut James Weaver was a better option than a sort of half-sighted Tadeo Wada. And you hit the nail on the head, Simon. That's how bad it was. So anyway, I set off again. And I, did a, I only did three or four laps. And then they decided there was a yellow flag or something. So they, ca I came into the, they called me into the pits. And somebody just dragged me out of the car. And old Wada-san jumps in. And I go, well, what are we doing? I go, well, he's going to drive it under yellow, and then you can get back in as soon as the yellow's over. 
<laughs> so this chap sat in the car for half an hour and they thought, well, we'll give it a bit of a service. And um, then they pulled him out and I carried on. And then the next pit stop, it wouldn't start. So they came up with this cunning idea of jump-starting it, which you're not allowed. So they got this um, tiny little Japanese bloke and they taped a battery with tank tape to his stomach zipped his overalls off and stuck the jump leads down his arms so he had, he had sort of crocodile clips for hands and he was wandering around like in one of those Japanese game show things and he staggers up to the car goes to start it misses and shorts himself out <laughs> so this poor bloke's lying on the ground sparking away and of course even the French noticed this and then there was hell to pay and um, and everybody was screaming and shouting and I said well Keith what should I do he said look just quietly get in the car and drive off in it <laughs> and so which is what which is what I did but the funniest thing of the whole thing is when we were busy having a wine in the um, uh, well several glasses of wine in the motorhome um, John Britton who used to be Richard Lloyd's partner was in there and he would beat him he, he would had a car accident in um, in South Africa and then he'd come to France and they would they'd sort of were looking after him and he upset Keith by saying how good the French uh, hospital system was compared to the NHS. And S Keith was having none of this. And um, then they were going on and on and on and it was getting more and more heated. And then um, Keith said, well, at least in England, they put the thermometer in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so John famously said, well, they put it in my mouth as well. To which Keith replied, it'd been up a Frenchman's ass five minutes earlier. <laughs> so did he feel better after that? I've never seen anybody. <laughs> the colour drained from his face. It was just wickedly funny. Uh, well done. Good story, James. Very good. Very, very good. Andy, um, uh, Le Mans's been a pretty good hunting ground for you, actually, hasn't it, really, over the years? Um, I, presume, <laughs> I presume your experiences with Le Mans are somewhat more serious. <laughs> Well, I mean, how can you top that, really? <laughs> I mean, whatever happens, it could never top that. But actually, I wish this programme was sort of five or six hours long because some of the stories that James has um, locked away in that steel trap of a mind book, of his... A book, a book, Well, if we could just grab them out, I mean, you'll have people in stitches for hours and hours. <laughs> but uh, no, no, I mean, Lamont had, was very, very kind to me. Um, I, as in fact James did too, was lucky enough or unlucky enough to drive pre-chicanes on the straight yeah and I have to say that straight was really long and really really fast yeah. and I, when I think about it now the, the the hairs still stand up on the back of my really? neck I mean that was seriously seriously fast uh, we only had five gears of course and so the gaps between the gears were, were enormous to get to over 240 miles sure. an hour and you I just remember popping it into fifth gear each time and everything had been whizzing past all the trees are whizzing by when you're in fourth you pop it into fifth the trees are still whizzing by, but now the soundtrack doesn't match the video. You've got very low revs, everything's whizzing by. But sure enough, a few uh, hundred metres later, the soundtrack's back and the trees are whizzing past even more. It's an unbelievable speed. Do you, honestly, um, this is a bit of a sort of layman's question, but I'm often asked it by people who want me to ask it. Is, is there ever a point at which you're frightened? Or, or, is, it, or is it just, you know, you're, you're in charge and that's that and... Well, I think you look at it, it depends on where you are in your career, I suppose. Um, when you start off, I was in my 20s when I was first at Le Mans. So first of all, you don't have an imagination, which is quite lucky. Um, you're young, a little bit on the reckless side, perhaps. But um, you also tend to understand the physics of it. And for a tyre to stay together at over 240 miles an hour, lap after lap, is actually a big ask. So... Um, in fact, I will tell you a little story. On on the top of the dashboard, we had a, a little computer which was measuring uh, what how many. What car are we in here? This is the Jaguar, the, oh, the, the Jaguar, um, right, yeah, yeah XGR9 yeah. Um, Jaguar, yeah. Silkcut Jaguar. Um, so on top of there is a little computer. It's measuring the amount of fuel you're using, and it's calculated in laps to make it easy for us to understand. So each time you pass the pits, you know you've done four laps. It should say four. If it says 4.2, you've used too much. So um, nice little computer. But in the corners, uh, in each corner, there was a little button with a red light inside it. And we'd fitted. Um, there were no uh, tire pressure sensors in these days. And, and uh, one of the easiest ways to get a tire to explode was a slow puncture. 
because as soon as the tyre starts to deflate a little bit, you don't feel it on the straight because you've got so much speed there. All that happens is the tyre gets hotter and hotter and hotter and explodes. So we had these tyre temperature sensors, infrared tyre temperature sensors, measuring the outside, middle and inside of each tyre. Uh, when Percy had had a massive accident the year before, these sensors were fitted and it didn't pick it up because it had been a, a bit of a rainstorm and it uh, coated the lenses in dirt. Yeah. So they weren't foolproof, but they were there. So you go down the straight, and if there's a problem on a particular tyre, that red light flashes. You then press that button, and it reads the three temperatures across the tyre. So I remember, I remember very well going down the straight. You're 50 seconds. It's three and a half miles. You're 50 seconds flat out from one end to the other. So I'm driving down the straight, and I'm looking where I'm going. And I'm looking at all the traffic, and then I stare across, no red lights. So I'm like, okay, it's good. Unless the bulb is broken. <laughs> <laughs> then this is not good. So if you push the button, you'll get all three temperatures, whether or not the light's flashing. So I thought, right, okay, then press the button. No, that looks good. Other one, other one, other one. Great. This okay. is 240 miles. Yeah, it's 240 now. miles now. Right. So then I'm carrying on down the straight and I'm like, great, that's all good. Oh, what if the bulb's broken now? Press <laughs> <laughs> it again, you know? And, it, and if it's. Uh, look, I'm, I'm actually. I'm telling you this story. I'm actually a little bit beginning to sweat in my palms. The hairs are definitely on the back of my neck. I'm almost yeah. shaking as well. This is, you know, this is serious stuff. Yeah. Um, and I know, I know it's funny. Of course it's funny because I'm sat here at this table. Sure, and what sure, could sure. possibly go wrong in this office? But, sure, sure. you know, the danger was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So much so that uh, all year uh, we were on the Dunlop radial tyres, which would regularly on the drum in the factory explode at around about 250 miles an hour. So um, the decision was taken to go back to the cross-ply tyre for Le Mans. So we raced on the cross-ply, which apparently was good for closer to 300. So we should have been fine. However, a slow puncture yeah, yeah. is what could trip you up so um, it's not for the faint-hearted this stuff is it yeah yeah. but but then on the other hand you're in your 20s you're racing at Le Mans and you're racing a British car in front of 50,000 British fans you're you know potentially a winning car and potentially a winning car I mean and it's it's the most fantastic feeling you've got all the adrenaline pumping and you're a racing driver and you want to win and you know and I'd I'd been to the race three times with my dad on one of these page and more coach things yeah, where yeah, people yeah. were throwing up out the window on the way there and back <laughs> um, and so I, I knew I knew the race I knew what it was about and I you know to win this yeah. race would be fantastic so you've got all that mixed together but when you're on your own going yeah, down yeah, the straight yeah, in the middle yeah, of the yeah. night it could still go bang yeah. so it's, it's interesting you say about you know you knew what the race was about because a lot of drivers um, say you know I didn't really know what Le Mans was until I went there and actually did it and you know, with you sort of winning first time out, I was wondering whether you actually sort of appreciated that win to the full extent. But I guess you did because you knew all about it and things before you went there. Yeah, I mean, nothing quite prepares you for the first lap you set off down the straight. Um, you know, there, there's no speedo in the car in those days, so I just looked at the gear chart and it said at six thousand or around about six thousand, you're doing two hundred miles an hour. So the first time down the straight, I go six thousand two hundred lift off. Think well, two hundred is plenty fast enough for my first lap. And then about halfway down the straight, a Mercedes and a Porsche and another Jaguar fly past you like you're tied to a post. And you think, oh dear, right, okay. And then the next lap, you've got both feet, one on top of the other, just to stop you lifting. And you're fine. But yeah, in terms of uh, the importance of the race, yeah, I, I, it, it was a real thrill to go as a spectator in, in my, uh, you know, when I was in my teens. Um, it's a you know it's a big difference being on one side of the fence to the other. But having said that, you you did notice how many people went to the race. You know how many people were really passionate about it at the end of the race when everybody runs on the track. I've never seen so many people. So yeah, I had that feeling. It was interesting. That was the I think the first and last year my brother's ever been to Le Mans, and my father drove him, aged he would have been I think thirteen, all the way from Scotland in his XK120, drove wow. all the way out to Le Mans. And they said it was just obviously just the most ultimate trip. My brother's like, I don't really want to go back because no one's ever going to match that. <laughs> it's a pilgrimage, yeah. isn't it? Um, we must move on to some <coughs> readers' questions because they've been kind enough to take the time to send them in. And um, James Weaver, we have one from Julian Nowell. Julian Nowell wants to know, um, you came second at Le Mans uh, with, with Jonathan Palmer in 1985. In fact, I, I've just done an interview with Jonathan about it, so it'd be quite interesting to it. Um, do you rate that as one of your... A great days? I mean, surely... It, it was a fantastic result for the team, but it was actually a great shame for Richard Lloyd because um, Jan Lammers had left the team yeah. literally just 10 days before the race because yeah. there was a Grand Prix as well. 
Yeah. Um, you know, they, they couldn't find anybody. And uh, Keith Green rang me up and said, we'd like to do it. And I said, well, I've been driven the Rothmans camera car at Silverstone with mm. Vern Schupen. You know, are you sure you can't get anybody else? And I'm not fit enough. And he said, well, we'll go out for a run and I'll call you back later in the week. And I lived in East Ilsley then, which was um, on the horse gallops. And I couldn't run 50 yards. I mean, I was so unfit. I was working at Reynards as a T-boy at the time. And I was a bit nervous about it. And then Keith rang up and said, look, um, we can't get anybody else. You just have to come and, and do your best. Well, um, we lost, I think, about three and a half laps with a water temperature sensor mm. that went down. But JP was uh, on top of his game then. He was mm. devastatingly fast in 9.56. And if they'd had somebody with more experience in the car with them, I think they would have won. Really? Well, I'm sure they would. Well, yeah. Or put it this way, they, they, if they hadn't had a water temperature sensor problem, we'd have been very yeah, close yeah. to winning. And with a more experienced driver in the car, um, they'd, have, they'd have definitely won. It, was, it certainly was in at the deep end, wasn't it? It, it was I, I you know I went back after the first night practice I, I, I went back to the hotel and I, I lay there and I remember god I just wish I wasn't here I frightened the living daylights really? out of myself because when when it's a if you haven't driven at night before yeah um it all goes two-dimensional yeah and it's like somebody's just tilting the screen in front of you because yeah. you lose all your peripheral vision yeah. and so you go rattling off down to the Porsche curves at 210 220 miles an hour and you go, I don't actually know what I'm doing. <laughs> it was, and it was, you know, it was really intimidating, particularly when all your life you wanted to be a racing driver. Absolutely. And you go there and you go, I'm really struggling with this. It's one thing in the day. I mean, you know, was that your first time at night ever? No, I'd, I'd driven a couple of times, but nothing that fast. I no, went no. to Le Mans in 83 with Mazda right. and finished second in the C2 class. But that thing was so slow around the corners very fetching pink overalls when you're driving that Mazda I seem to remember Simon I'm glad you mentioned that that was one of my sartorial highlights in my career um, it says here it says here James that um, uh, one of your I hope you don't mind me saying so one of your, a fair number of crashes you had in Formula Ford um, it was Dr Jonathan Palmer who looked after you on one occasion is that right? Yeah, that was a sad day at Thruxton. And um, I think, yeah, we'd been racing at Snetterton the day before, and the works Van Diemen driver had crashed, but he had a very good Scholar engine. And so Ralph Furman at Van Diemen's had lent me a car. So he said, look, why don't you take the engine out of his car, put it in your car, and go to Thruxton? Great idea. Until at 2 o'clock in the morning, we left Van Diemen's, and scrutineering was sort of like 7 o'clock at Thruxton. We legged it down there, asleep, failed scrutineering with a gearbox leak, fix that I think you know I think qualified third or fourth or something anyway the race set off and um, I was at the back of the queue of five for the lead and Mike Thackwell was just ahead of me and he spun going through Kimpton and I, I hate this bloke I don't know who he was but he had written this book saying if you aim at the tire smoke by the time you get there it will have gone I thought this is a fantastic idea so you know I could have actually just taken my foot off the accelerator that you know, crossed my mind I thought I'd just keep my foot buried into the tire smoke out the other side it's all going to be fine what I'd failed to realise is that when Mike spun he thought well I'll just flick it through 180 degrees roll backwards flick it straight again and everything will be fine so my left front wheel took off his left front wheel and it, it, you know, it was only just a very mild bump but when it landed in the ploughed field it was like a joke cartoon it went straight in like a spear and stopped so it was sticking with its rear wheels up and it bent in two and the fuel tank split anyway they um uh it, it took about half an hour to chop the top of the car off and i was feeling a bit peaky by then so mike easily kindly took the car back to his workshop and we had to get back um home to my parents to watch the grand prix i think it must have been imola or something so jp said don't worry so he set off like an absolute maniac he had this jaguar and trailer God. and um you know, we thought, we, you know, it's Easter Bank holiday. Look, we must be able to get... We couldn't miss the start of the Grand Prix. So I was rolling around on the back seat. Ugh. And I was starting to whinge a bit. So he said, don't worry. So we went by his flat in Blackheath. And he gave me some painkillers called DF118s, which I think were meant for horses or something. <laughs> anyway, they, they, they worked a treat. And we got back to matching green just in time for the start of the Grand Prix. You're mad. You're, you're all mad, as far as I can see. Um, we've got a question now coming uh, from Robin Middleton. It's for you, Andy. And uh, Robin Middleton would like to say, uh, suggest that at the end of 87, when you, you um, swapped to the, to the uh, Magic Lola, um, this is the, in 3000 now, 
Um, do you think that, you know, if you'd won in any of those races in that car, it would have been the final push into Formula One? Um, actually, I'm, I agree with James in a way. I think if you really were good enough for it, right. someone somewhere would have spotted that and put you in there. Okay. So it probably, it may well have got me in, perhaps, but I, I still think somebody would have spotted it. Yeah, mm. it was interesting because once we did switch to the Lola, I, 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 every other race uh, that was left, it was either front row or second row in qualifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so it actually right. went very well, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, sadly, didn't actually manage to pull off a win. You okay. qualified in March earlier in the season on the front row at Spa in the wet, but that's only because it's flexing, I believe. I think yes, probably. Yeah, yeah I do remember that race well. Yeah, unfortunately, that got stopped, didn't it? The race yes, was stopped. Did, yeah, yeah. Actually, a lot of the races were stopped in those days. It was a um, crazy, crazy time. With Formula yeah. three thousand. Yeah. Mm. Um, can, I, can I can I just ask him? Actually, I mean, go on. Um, one of our colleagues, Marcus Sims at Autosport, wrote a feature two or three years back, which pointed out that the average age of the uh, drivers and the Clio UK Cup, I think it was, was lower than the average age of drivers in GP2, which I thought was quite interesting because it was a clear sign that, I mean, you know, go back to when you guys were on the stepladder, the Clio Cup or the Renault 5 Cup, Turbo Cup, or whatever it would have been at the time, was basically for middle-aged fat bastards, basically. Yeah. I mean, not always, but not well, exclusively. James and I would have fitted in perfectly. <laughs> but, but, I mean, in, in more recent times, one make tin-top series like that have become a kind of a career step for guys who are looking at you know, they, they want to get, they've had a successful karting career and they want a, a professional career in motorsport and they look at tin tops and sports cars because that's where it is perceived that there are more opportunities. I mean, you guys were among the first in some ways who spotted that really in the mid 80s rather than hanging on forever in single seaters. You, you went off to the States. I mean, you, with hindsight, you were kind of quite pioneering, both of you, weren't you? Well, yeah, James was slightly ahead of me yeah. on that one. I think the, the thing was you could never earn any money out of uh, single seaters you, you were always just scrabbling to try and get to the goal be, you know Formula 1 perhaps in, in the distance but whereas with sports cars you at least you could earn some money to continue and we'd all spent everything we had trying to get to F1 and we're completely broke so if somebody says to you right I'll give you a couple of grand to drive that car you go oh okay then um, but once you get there you realise actually that the, the motor racing the, the races themselves were fantastic and there were some great drivers in sports cars that perhaps yeah, didn't yeah. quite make it and you were racing against some really really talented people in some fantastically fast cars and actually um, in those days, um, actually it's probably still true, the, the, I mean in a straight line anyway, those cars were f faster than a Formula 1 car, mm. and so it was a thrill to drive them. When you were in the Toyota, weren't you as quick as a Formula 1 car around Monza? Aha, I'm glad you asked that, that's another, that's another story. Was that Toyota fact, or was that Andy? <laughs> well, what, no, what, no. Was the, what was the fact of that? No, and unfortunately, that's what killed Group C was the change in the regulations. Mm. But uh, if you remember, when when the fuel formula stopped, which was the end of 1990, so 91 onwards, 91, 92, and then yeah. the championship died. But uh, we switched from 900 kilo cars down to 750 kilos. They were full ground effect cars, yeah. and they had Formula One V10 three and a half liter engines. So. Um, in terms of speed, uh, we were testing quite often at the same tracks that Formula 1s were there. I remember Tyrrell, Arrows, testing yeah. at Paul Ricard with us. And a Formula 1 car was 540 kilos and we were 750. So if the F1 car was full of fuel and therefore similar weight to us when we were empty, we are actually quicker than them yeah. pretty much everywhere. And we got to Monza, which of course is a little bit unfair, a race between a, a Group C and a Formula 1 at Monza because the wheels are covered on a Group C so we have less yeah. drag. Um, Ayrton Senna was there with the McLaren and he did a number doesn't matter but I got it in my mind 126.8 uh, was the fastest lap and they were there the day before us so we were there and we were doing 27s and getting quicker and quicker and quicker I remember dipping into the 26s and thinking whoa I could go as fast as that instead of this will be fantastic so but the limiting factor for the chicane which in those days went left and right yeah. as opposed to where right, it goes yeah, now yeah. you and these cars were you know, full ground effect um carbon brakes but the thing they didn't have was the paddle shift system so you still had a, an H pattern gearbox yeah. gates very close together quite tricky to change gear in fact there were a lot of mechanical lockouts to stop you getting the wrong one because we've blown up a few engines like that so when you arrive down at the chicane doing 210 215 miles an hour you jumped on the brake the brakes were so powerful and the downforce stopped them locking so you really did slow down quickly you had to get from from sixth gear to second gear 
And but the moment you brake, the car stops so quickly. Sometimes you end up you're still in fourth, and you turn in, you're in the wrong gear. So the limiting factor is the gear change. So what I decided was it was a lot more helpful if you opened your mouth on the way down the straight and put your hand on the gear lever, mouth wide open, so that when you brake, you could just grab the gear lever and it would allow you to go six, four, two, and then turn in. So. 26.9, 26.85, and I think all I've got to do is break even later, change gear even quicker, and I'll be faster than the Centre, and then, you know, that's, that's it. Of course, my, my, I meet my destiny. Well, I did, actually, because I got down the end of the straight, mouth open, I grabbed the gear lever, and I actually managed to smash it into fourth gear before I fully got to the brake pedal. So then I'm in the gravel track, <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's a bit of a timing issue. Unfortunately, so I'm, I'm in the gravel track looking back at the parabolica in the distance and I failed to beat his time. But I was ever so close, ever so close. And I would have made it had I not been in the gravel trap. On, on, that, on, on, that, on that note, actually, I mean, it's, uh, this is being recorded on May the 1st, 2014, which is the 20th anniversary, obviously, of Ayrton's passing. Um, I don't think you raced against him, James, did you? But you did in Formula Ford. I did, and I actually... I know so you had a Royal RP29, which is probably a disadvantage, but... Well, actually, and I don't want to hog it, James, so switch my mic off if I'm hogging it, mate. But uh, So I have another story, of course. Um, Ayrton had done... He'd won the British Formula Ford Championship, yep. RSE, in... 81. And, and the Tantan Terrace. Right, that's it. So in 82, I, I actually was loaned a chassis uh, by Van Diemen. So I was running a, a, you know, a factory car. Um, still running the car myself, but uh, anyway, yeah. And he had moved up to Formula 4 2000. So a good lap time around Silverstone Grand Prix circuit was a 41 for pole, 41.1 or 41 flat you'd get the pole. And I was all morning driving round and round and round and I couldn't go faster than 141.5. So I thought, well, there must be something wrong with the car if it won't go that fast. So I just... Um, <laughs> Clearly. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I just said to Ralph, he said, how's it going? I said, well, I think there's something wrong with this chassis you've given me because I can only do a 41.5. So he said, um, and you know, and you believe at this stage you're the best driver in the world. Sure. Of course you do. That's sure. why you're there. So he, he says, uh, oh, well, let's see if Ayrton's busy so he'd been pedalling around all morning in a Formula 4 2000 so slicks wings completely different it would take some laps to get your head round back into a Formula 4 1600 treaded tyres different car altogether so Ayrton comes wandering down how's it going yep thank you very much jumped in the car his first flying lap was a 41.1 first flying lap he then came in the pits and said it was fine <laughs> so I'm like right so I said ah of course silly me I know I'm going to be the second best driver in the world now. <laughs> and unfortunately, every time something like that happens to you, yeah, yeah. you slip down a little bit. So um, I then decided, I think I'm up to 188th now, best driver in the world. Not bad. Is that, is that, is that ahead of me or behind me? Um, James, you, you've always been my hero, mate. So you're definitely ahead of me. Um, well, uh, this is terrible, actually, because we're running out of time, and it and it's been just. I, I told you, you need hours. Yes, hours. well, maybe, maybe. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let's have an extension. Go yeah, on, yeah, we're going to have. We're, we're we're already into extra time. It's fine. Don't worry. Um, James, um, America, huge part of your life, um, and Julian now asks a question about why you had a uh, he said he says and i think this is true you had a chance with mercedes and bentley but you decided to go to america where you spent many 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 i mean obviously you made money out of doing that but why what was why else did you do that i, th I think we i tried japan with tiff um in 85 which was great fun but i must admit i didn't really enjoy japan very much mm. and then when i got the chance to go to america i was really lucky because i drove with price cobb and Price is an absolute gentleman. I mean, fabulous bloke, great driver. And he drove for Rob Dyson. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, Rob's been incredibly generous to me and my family. Yeah. Me and too. Yeah. Well, he, all of us, isn't he? And he's, you know, he's a proper old, old school car owner. Um, and he's just great fun to be around. And I just enjoyed it so much. I thought, right, I'm going to make that my home. And, you know, and it, it worked out brilliantly for me. Sometimes... Um it's a funny thing, America. So some English people really take to it. I, I love it, but I know lots of other people do too. You obviously did. Um, what was it like to begin with, though? Because wherever you are, I mean, it's, it's not quite home to start with, is it? I guess you were busy and... I mean, did you have, was it fun? 
It's more fun than sort of slogging around, you know, wherever it was you were slogging. Yeah, it was outrageous fun because it was all, it was like starting a career all over yeah, again because yeah. everything was new. Yeah. Um, and what m- many people don't know is that the, the tracks in America and Canada are much, much better than the European tracks. Yeah. They're very, very old school, yeah, which yeah. is staggering when you think of all the insurance implications. But you go to sort of Watkins Glen, yeah, um, yeah. Moss Ball, Road Lime Rock, the old Road, uh, yeah, Road America, the old Atlanta. I mean, great, great tracks. Yeah, yeah. And um, also the Americans are naturally enthusiastic. If they employ you to do a job, they assume you're going to do well. Yeah. You know, so it's a natural yeah. thing. Oh, what, you know, what can we do to help? What do we need to do? Sometimes you drive the European team. All right, how's he going to cut this up then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's a yeah, completely yeah, yeah. different. You know, you've got to. Um, yeah. You got to be. You know, to succeed in Europe, you've got to be very, very tough mentally. Yeah. How did how did the um, Weaver sense of humour go down in America? Was that did they? Well, Rob always said, "Look, we can't understand each other, so we're going to get on fine." <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and actually, I, I have to thank James because James was the one who got me into Dyson Racing as well. And I spent 13 years with the team and had an absolutely fantastic time. James has got a story for you because um, we used to jump on the same plane, of course, and, and barrel over to America for the race. Over to you, James. <laughs> no, not the steward story. Oh, yeah. I suppose you can't say that, can you? <laughs> well, okay. I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try and make it as polite as possible. It, it, the story goes back to we were, I think we'd been testing at Sebring, and Andy loves a bargain. He'd spotted this jean shop near the airport where you could buy your Levi's for two and sixpence. So we went round the, um, with, with Butch Likeson was with us, and so we went round and we bought a job lot of jeans each. Thought, this is absolutely fantastic. But the funny thing was, we lost Butch, and allegedly, according to Andy, I was standing in the middle of the store with my hands on my hip, shouting, Butch, Butch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I felt somebody pull my trouser leg, and it was Andy hiding. He'd got one of those trolleys, you know, and he sort of got up behind me and said, look, James, you can't stand in the middle of the room shouting, Butch, Butch. Anyway, didn't think anything of it and then we turned up for this flight and I think Andy had come from France and had bought a bottle of champagne and I said well I'll make the sandwiches because we used to take our own food so I made some nice smoked salmon sandwiches and everything and by sheer bad luck we had the same jeans on and I found my young brother had found this chap down in Cornwall who used to work for Lobs the Shoemakers so you could get yourself a pair of Lobs for 200 quid instead of 1200 so we had the same shoes on the same trousers and by sheer bad luck white shirt and a sports jacket and to be honest, we look like an item. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> champagne and sandwiches. Yeah, smoked salmon, no less. <laughs> we walked onto the aircraft, and the steward goes, "Oh, morning, sir." And he sort of, and then um, Andy walked on, and I don't know what got into me, but I lost the plot completely because I said to him, "Actually, we're just on off on holiday together." <laughs> and he, he went, "Oh, oh, that's nice." And um, I said that you couldn't, you know, we got a bottle of champagne. You couldn't bring a couple of champagne flutes down. Promise. He said, no, no, that's no problem. So we sit we're down. in the economy, of course. You know, we were right in the, the zoo where we belong. You know, the little two at the side. And I had the window seat, and Andy had the aisle seat. And the steward came down. And as he came down, I sort of leant lovingly towards Andy and sort of made cow eyes at the steward, which just drove him bonkers. So he then came down with his boyfriend. And then they, we ran out of champagne, so they brought us another bottle of champagne. And Andy got so pissed. I was, of course, stone cold sober. And um, <laughs> when, we, when we stepped off the aircraft, going, oh, James, they were ever so nice, weren't they? Wasn't that really good service? And I'm going, oh, yes, mate, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I, I, I told him what had happened about 10 years later. He goes, you bastard, I knew you were up to something. <laughs> so did you drink more on that flight or in the Nissan motorhome? That's what I want to know. I, actually, we got absolutely wrecked, didn't we? Yeah, we, we did. In fact, most of the flights we did, too. But we were very well behaved. We didn't get out of our seat or anything, but we... I we, tell you what, the, well, the, the really fantastic thing about both of you, together or separately, is, um, you know, what, what an amazing career, life you've had. You know, Andy, c- can you pick a couple of highlights or lowlights out of this, you know, what would be a gigantic book, wouldn't it? Well, it would, and it, it's going to have to happen. Actually, because I mean, we did lunch with together, and now we're doing this podcast together, I think we should do a joint book, James. People may be starting to worry about us anyway. Well, they, they, they are, yeah. Well, especially with his pink socks. He, he always wears pink socks, and it was a thing that the, yeah, the American TV picked up on, and they didn't quite understand it. He just luckily he was English, and he was eccentric, so it didn't sure, matter. But sure, um, sure. I, the trouble is, asking me that question, yeah. there are so yeah, many yeah. stories, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick 
one. Yeah. Um, and I, I might have mixed the years up, but it was the year that we won the uh, Watkins Glen Six Hours together, which was a fantastic race. Now, um, in, in all these hot races... In what car? Uh, this was the Riley and Scott Ford for Dyson Racing. Right. Okay. Um, Is that when you copped it up with the gold taps? Yes. So you can do the gold taps part at the end, but I... I <laughs> You know, when when you you're in these cars, the I'll do the motor racing bit. Yeah, you can do the gold touch. But um, no, but in all these races, of course, it's stinking hot, and so you're you're drinking like crazy before you jump in the car, yeah. um, and then as long as there's no safety car out, you're fine because you you just sweat it all out. Well, if there's a safety car, you're in big trouble. So ordinarily, you just take a pee in the seat. Of course, you do. Everybody does that. Yeah. So, but not James, of course. James would never do that. How how no, he would never do that. So we're all dressed in white suits, and there we go to the podium. And James did the last stint of the race. We won the race. Fantastic driving by James. Butch and I are on the podium already. And then our teammate comes towards us and uh, joins us on the podium. And I said, James, did you, um, did you pee in the seat? And he's like, no. No, I didn't. Oh, okay. That's great. He got this massive tide mark all the way around his crutch from his knees up to his, under his arms, which was a different color to the rest of the suit. Well, what's that then? Well, maybe I did then. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there you go. Well, I tell you what, a, a, a win's a win, isn't it? Yeah. Well, a win's a win, and you know, and uh, actually, I mean, to win a six-hour race is a is a thrill. Is that was a that was a. Where, did he do the final race. stint? He did. Well, that's yeah. a mercy then, isn't it? At least no one had to get in after that. Yes, but Butch and I did the non-final stints, and we and it was definitely hot, and we definitely did drink a lot of water. So there you go, James. Um, Mr. Weaver, would you like to finish up? Um, Actually, I was thinking there's so many Watkins Glen story. I was yeah. thinking the wrong one. I was thinking the time that um, Butch and I won in the Riley and Scott overall, and Andy won in the GT section for Panos. Yeah. And after the race, we went back to the local airfield where Rob Dyson had his jet and Don Panos had his jet. And, and they said, well, where do you want to go, boys? And we think, well, we've got to get Boston, New York, I don't know, where should we go? Because we had to get home. And Andy and I were falling about laughing, thinking, how did two chances like us ever get to the point where we're trying to decide, you know, what private jet we should go on? So, you know, being a gentleman, I said, Andy, I'll tell you what, mate, I'll let you make the choice. And so he looked at them, and you know how technical Andy is? I think, well, of course, this one's got this engines or that wing or... No, none of it. He goes, well, I think Don Panos has gold taps in his. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, are you sure? I know, he'd definitely have gold taps. So I said, well, okay, well, we'll go with Don Panos then. And we got on there. He didn't have any beer, did he? No, he didn't. <laughs> but he did have the gold taps. Yeah. And so I never <laughs> forgave Andy for that. I tell you what, who needs who needs Formula One? You've you've had just had an amazing time, haven't you? Fantastic. Can I can I just yeah, 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 it's just um, one, one 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 name answer from both of you. Toughest adversary you've come across at any level, the karting, Formula Ford, whatever. It might even be each other, but toughest toughest adversary. Rick Morris. That's a very good answer. I, um, I was expecting you to say that actually, but <laughs> Rick Morris. Good, yeah, um, we all remember Ian Taylor. Pat Ian Taylor, probably the hardest fighter, the best for racecraft would have to be Rick. Really? He, he was tough as well. Mm. Yeah, I, those two, definitely. Yeah, from my earlier career, it was Maurizio Sandrasala. Oh, yeah. Um, he was really tough, but there were so many more when we went sports car racing. It's difficult for a one-word answer, isn't it? Very sure. difficult. Well, there were sure. homicidal maniacs, lunatics, but for just for... If you played more or less by the rules, I think Ian and Rick are as good as they got, really, weren't well, they? Well, those are names to conjure with from, from the history of British motor racing, aren't they? And Maurizio as well, of course. Brilliant little driver, wasn't he? Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. fantastic, yeah. What about... What about, um, what about... Can you pick the best car, that your favourite car you've driven well the best car was in fact this toyota that i ended up in the gravel trap in i mean uh and and still now i mean it's unbelievable how much downforce these cars had and then only weighing 750 kilos yeah. they were incredible the, yeah. the the grip level in the corners was it was such a big step up when you first drove the cars you kept going around the corner as fast as you thought it would go and then you thought oh i'm nowhere near the limit next lap next lap next yeah, lap amazing, it took yeah. a long time to reach the limit fantastic james would you pick one or not the, the Tiger FF79, uh, Formula Ford 1600, and the Tiger SC80 were both stunningly good cars. Um, little Chevron B36 yeah. was fantastic. The Riley and Scott was a great car. But I think my, f my Hawk DL11 was my first car. And that was my first car. Yeah, it was the one I've yeah. got the fondest spot for. <laughs> yeah. Really, it's interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, just, I just remember the, the first time I met you was at Donington Park. You'd have been in F3 at the time, I think, you, but you were driving a Cooper T53 or something, a historic event. I can't remember how that came about. That was a chap who was friendly with Mike Eastick down at the school. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm, that's right. I did the Donington... It was an HSCC meeting yeah. at Donington Park. Yeah, that was a lovely car to drive. I mean, you could four-wheel drift it. Those old cars mm. are so nice. Well, there's always the Goodwood Revival. For, for drivers who are going faster and faster the older they get. I mean, fantastic event, isn't it? No, it is a great event, actually. Yeah. It really is. Okay, well, hey, but, but this is a double act. I mean, this is, is this what you do now on Friday nights? Is it? It's kind of Weaver and Wallace down the pub, is it? Actually, it's usually down the local curry house. <laughs> yes. Well, I think it's one of the reasons Rob Dyson employed us, because we sort of used to keep him amused. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> really? For a very okay, long time. Well, Thank you so much, Andy Wallace, James Weaver. Thank you, thank you. Fantastic. Maybe we could persuade you to come back for part two uh, another time. Absolutely, yeah, we and should. We'll say ciao, Manueli, as well. <laughs> eh, grazie, eh? grazie. Good. Absolutely. Well, I hope you'll join us. Um, I'm looking desperately at my producer, Ed, to see if we know who's on the next one. It doesn't look like we do. No, we, no, we don't. But that's okay because it'll be a big surprise. So I know we do, but it's a surprise. All right, it's a secret. That better, doesn't it? I love it. I love it. Great. Okay, well, I hope you'll join us next time on another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.